Well, Merry Christmas, Hope Markham. Would you open your Bible together with me to Luke chapter 1. Today we're going to consider Luke 1 verse 50 to verse 53. The voice you heard in the uh, video is the uh, words that Mary sung, the song she sung after she heard from the angel Gabriel that she was the one chosen by God to conceive the Christ child, to bear the one who would be born to be the great son of God and the promised savior king. And what we see in her song is that she recognizes a few things about who God is. He is the invisible God, but he is involved in everyday life. He's unseen to our eyes, but he has absolute power. And the way she celebrates the blessing of being chosen by God and knowing his power and knowing his involvement in our lives is we really see in her a trust of who God is, celebrating who he is. It can feel harder and harder uh, nowadays to trust people who are in positions of power. It's not surprising, really. It seems like every other month that another story, another scandal breaks of another person who has power but abuses it, who has power but uses it for corrupt means. Power can be used like a a weapon to tear down or like a tool to build up. Power can be like a, a surgeon's scalpel that carefully takes out and re, uh, cuts open to remove a wound or it can be like a sword that divides and conquers anyone that would get in their way. Power can be used like a tool, like a hammer that can build something up or it can be like a sledge Hammer that can tear something down. And our distrust and skepticism towards positions of power really permeates throughout all of society and all of culture. Our distrust permeates into family, distrusting parents. It permeates into schools, distrusting teachers. It permeates into government, distrusting politicians. It permeates into churches. It's not uncommon these days for people to say something like this. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And maybe you're one of those people. A lot of people have this attitude because they don't trust organized religion, but they still want a sense of God. The Christmas narrative and the story of Jesus, the great son of God, who is the promised savior king, who as creator of the universe holds absolute power over all of it, the story of this God with this power coming into this world and like an infant born to a teenager in a barn shows us that God wields his power and authority in the right way. And this unseen, invisible God who has power to define right and wrong who has power to define good and bad and who does judge us according to the way that we live because he wields his power in such a meek way. He is someone worth entrusting our entire lives over to. Someone worth giving up our control so that we can give him control. Someone worth following because we know that he'll lead us in a way that we'll find blessing. Mary's song shows us that God wields 
his absolute power with might and with mercy so you can trust in him today. God wields his absolute power in the way that it should be with might and with mercy. And it's worth it to give up your own semblance of control of your own life so that you can trust in him in the way that he will guide your life. Today we want to ask and answer two questions about God's powerful might and mercy. First, we want to ask, how is his might and mercy expressed? And then we want to ask, what would it look like if we actually trusted our lives over to him? So would you stand with me as we do to honor God in the reading of his word? We're going to read Luke chapter 1, verse 50 to verse 53. This is God's word. It speaks to us today, and this is what it says. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Let's turn our attention to God and pray together. Our Father in heaven, I acknowledge that you are the creator of the ends of the earth and the stars in the sky and the souls in our being. Lord, you have absolute power over all creation. Thank you, Lord, that you present yourself and showed yourself to the world in such a meek way by allowing your son to be sent as an infant born to an overlooked teenage girl who would not be accepted and wasn't found, didn't find a place in the city and had to give birth in a barn. That's how the Son of Man came. That's how the Son of God was born. Father, thank you that you are mighty, but you're also merciful. Would you make this clear to us today and show us how we can trust in you? And would your word prove to us that it is worth giving up control of our lives so that we, in giving you control, we can find the blessing of following you in your might and in your mercy. In Jesus' name, help us, Lord. Amen. Amen. Are you trusting God with your life in every aspect? God wields his absolute power in might and mercy, and you can trust in him. So how is his might and mercy expressed? What would it look like if we actually trusted in him? Well, the first way this passage shows us the might and mercy expressed is with authority. God's might and mercy is expressed with authority. Look at verse 51. Mary sings, praising God, saying, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. This phrase, the strength of God's arm, is a familiar Old Testament phrase that refers to God's authority. God's authority as the creator of the world over all nations, God's authority to be able to deliver his people that are being oppressed and to remove those people who are the oppressors. Remember, God promised to Mary from the angel Gabriel that 
she would conceive a child who would be the great son of God and the promised savior king. Mary knew that God is a God who delivers. She used a familiar phrase, the strength of God's arm, probably remembering the familiar phrase that was in Deuteronomy 26, talking about the way that God with his authority delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt. In Deuteronomy 26, it says that the Lord with an a mighty hand and an outstretched arm delivered his people, Israel, out of Egypt. And now Mary hears that her child will be the promised Savior King, another deliverer. And she sees again that God has shown the strength of his arm to deliver. And while Israel needed political deliverance from the oppression by the nation of Egypt... The Savior King Jesus comes with spiritual deliverance to rescue us from the slavery of our sin. God not only mercifully delivers his people out of their bondage, but in his might, he also opposes those who would mistreat his people or stand against his authority. He shows his strength with his arm to deliver his people. He also scatters the proud in the thoughts of their heart. These are the people who oppose God. These are the people who would not submit to his authority. Who would even be the ones who would oppress and mistreat God's people. I wonder, is that you? So, uh, excuse me, Luke 1, 50-53 gives a profile to us. To show us the type of person that does not trust in God. And it's really, these are people that are all about themselves. These are people that are saturated with self-centeredness. They are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. The hearts are the core of their being. The thoughts is irrational thinking. And from the core of their being to the motivation of their thinking to the way that they behave, everything is pride. They are saturated with self-centeredness. They're also striving to be self-made. It'll later say that these are people who want to be mighty and want to establish themselves in a recognized position like on a throne. They're saturated with self-righteousness. They're striving for greatness that is self-made. And to get up to that throne, they're not afraid to step on people's back to reach the top. The people that don't trust in God are saturated with self-righteousness. They strive to be self-made and also they're satisfied with their own self-righteousness. They believe that they're justified in everything they do. And that they should be accepted for everything they do. And that God should approve everything they do. Without consequence. The person who trusts in uh, themselves and doesn't trust in God and his power. They're saturated with self-centeredness. They are striving to be self-made. And they're satisfied with their own self-righteousness. Is that you? Verse 51 says that God in his authority delivers and he scatters. Really, the answer to the question, is that you, is answered by this other question. Do you think you need to be delivered? Do you see yourself in slavery or are you think you're secure 
in the way that you're living for yourself. The Bible says that every human being is enslaved to something. And it's either leading you on a direction towards death, the spiritual death of being separated from God and any of the goodness that your creator has for you, or it's leading you towards righteousness and life and enjoying the fullness that comes from entrusting your life to the one true living God. Everyone's enslaved to something. What are you? Romans 6 verse 16 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? Everyone is enslaved to what they obey. You might say, well, I I don't obey anything. I follow myself. All right, well, let's use a different word. Everyone is enslaved to what they are devoted to. The thing that you prioritize in the place of God, though you wouldn't call it or him God. What do you devote your most of your time to? What do you devote your energy to? What do you devote yourself to believing that if you are devoted to it, you will gain some reward from it. You can be enslaved in this type of devotion to your job. You can be enslaved to your education. You can be enslaved to your grades. You can be enslaved to your body image. You can be enslaved to your kid's success. You can be enslaved to your reputation of yourself. And you might think, I'm not enslaved to that, that's my choice. It is a choice, and it's leading you either one of two directions. The spiritual death of separation from God, or towards God himself who gives you life. God's might and mercy is expressed in his authority to deliver. And the good news is that all of these things that are not God, which lead us towards death, the Lord offers deliverance from them. And Jesus himself is the promised Savior King who would deliver his people from their sins. That was the proclamation of the angels who came to proclaim the birth of Christ. He will save his people from their sins. Do you recognize that your devotion to these things is devotion to sin and devotion to death? Christ is ready to deliver you but you need to recognize his authority. You need to recognize you're enslaved. God's power is expressed in his authority to deliver. He mercifully is ready to deliver, but he's also mighty to scatter those who are proud in their hearts. So if we trust in him, how will that be expressed? Our trust in him is expressed in loyalty. Are you loyal to God? To reject the authority of God and to reject the will of God is to be saturated in self-centeredness. And it's to be enslaved to sin. Choosing to be loyal to God means choosing to give up my own self-centeredness. Choosing to let go of my will so I can follow God's will. But it's worth it, friend. It's worth it 
to stop trusting in yourself, to give up your own self-centeredness, and to follow his will. Because when you do so, you're following the will of the one who created you. You're following the will of the one who designed you. You're following the will of the one who knows right and wrong and good from bad and offers good blessing. Letting go of your own will to follow God's will is devoting yourself to be loyal to the one who will offer you a life of meaning and purpose that transcends the vanity of this life that will end into nothingness. 1 John chapter 2 explains this very well. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the, in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but the world. And the world and all its desires is passing away. But... Whoever does the will of God abides forever. The person who is loyal to God has confidence that their life matters and has meaning of the enduring kind of meaning. But it means that surrendering my will to God's will and being loyal to him in all areas of my life. Are you trusting in God like that? God, I trust you with my future. God, I trust you with my kids. God, I trust you with my career. God, I trust you with my reputation. And the person who does this, the person who is loyal to God, it's not some compelled, forced loyalty. It's a glad loyalty. It's a loving loyalty because I know what I've been delivered from. I've been delivered from those things that thought would give me life, but they're leading me towards death. And the promised Savior King is my deliverer. And because he saved me from those things, I am glad to give up my own control. I am glad to surrender my own will. I am glad to be loyal to your will. Yet that might seem like a fearful decision because all you've known is your devotion to these things but it's worth it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, but to forfeit his soul? God is trustworthy. He has the might. He has the mercy. And in his authority, he can give you the blessing of life. But we need to be loyal to him. How else is God's might and mercy expressed? Not just with authority, not just his authority to deliver, to deliver, but God's authority is also, excuse me, God's might and mercy is also expressed in justice. Look at verse 52. In verse 52, the teenage girl Mary says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. God is just. And the type of justice that God judges the world with is equity. God is equitable in his justice. That means that the outcome of the blessing of anyone who follows him is equal. There is a quality of outcome in the treasure and blessing of God's kingdom because his kingdom and his riches of his mercy are not, they're not received by our merit. They're 
received by his mercy, not by our effort, but by his effort. God judges equitably. He, those who believe that they are mighty and seek to establish their own thrones, they're brought down. But those who are lowly and recognize their lowliness, they're brought up. God is equitable. Mary described herself as one of those people who are of humble estate. In verse 48, she says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Mary is an example to us of the type of heart and the type of person that God lifts up. What does it mean to have a humble? What does it mean to have a humble estate? We learned last week that this is the same attitude that Jesus teaches about being poor in spirit. Do you live like you're poor in spirit? To be poor in spirit is to admit that I'm spiritually poor. I'm spiritually impoverished. I'm spiritually in debt. I'm spiritually bankrupt. It means that there's nothing I have intrinsic to myself that can buy God's favor. There's nothing I have of value that can purchase God's grace. There's nothing that I have of value that stands before God that he would approve me. I'm poor in spirit. But the Lord is equitable. And those who on their own effort would try to be mighty and try to ascend to a place of prominence to get people's recognition, yet God brings those people down. But those who are willing to be lowly and admit they are nothing and have nothing, God brings those people up. It's worth it to be poor in spirit because our mighty and merciful God judges justly and with equity. If I were a skeptic of Christianity, though, I would hear that and say, this does not sound worth it. Choose to be poor in spirit. Why be poor in spirit when I can be self-made? Why be poor in spirit when I know I can make it rich with what all the world offers me? What value is it to act like I'm nothing when I know I am something and can be something? For eight years at our church here, I had the privilege of working with young people. And I found in the time that I worked with young people, as a young person myself, that younger people are often the people who are most magnetically attracted to the desire to be self-made and to strive to be great by their own effort. Yet in the time I've worked with young people, I've found that those people who are most driven to strive to be self-made are also the people who are the most insecure. Their tank is filled with fear and worry in the same way that a car's tank is filled with gas. Fear and worry propels them to make something of themselves. Maybe it's their expectations of their parents. Maybe it's the pressure of the culture. Maybe it's just personal ambition. But they strive and they strive and they strive, and I've seen young people make it, but at the cost of their own mental health, at the cost of their physical health, at the cost of peace of mind, and most importantly, at the cost of their relationship with God. Driven to be self-made by fear and insecurity. Why? Because at least at an unconscious level, 
they've convinced themselves that their self-worth will only have value if they can achieve something by themselves. On the other hand, that's also why young people are always so apathetic. Because they see this ideal that the culture has, but they don't think they could ever reach it. So why even try? I'd be just, it's content enough to work 20 hours a week at a minimum wage job and spend the rest of my hours gaming online and expending the little income that I have on drinking and partying with my friends. Because I don't think they could ever reach it. So why even try? This isn't just a young person's problem, too. I see this in parents who put so much pressure on their kids to be something because their self-worth is attached to their kids' success. I've seen this in middle-aged adult men who, who are pat, way past the prime of their life and nowhere near where they expected they would be in their 20s and look back at the past 25 years and say, it all feels like it was worthless because they've convinced themselves that they need to strive to be self-made because if they don't, they won't have any self-worth. Jesus of Nazareth shows us, shows us a different way. The meekness of the Son of God, who is the promised Savior King, to choose to come from heaven to earth, not with parades, not with shouts of celebration, but into a teenage girl born in a barn, shows us a different and better way. Yet the meekness of Christ is so disregarded in our culture, even the Western society is built on the foundation of the life and teaching of Jesus. Our culture does not have a, any really real respect for the name of Jesus. Part of me is really glad that that ice cream shop in Markville Mall recently shut down. Part of me is really sad that there's a movie coming out on Netflix soon. That's really representing the, the name and the life of Jesus. People don't respect the name of Jesus. At best, it's a fairy tale for children or a placebo for the lesser educated. But the life and teaching of Jesus shows us a model to how to for us to live to be able to live in such a way that has confidence in our value and self-worth in the way that our culture and striving to be self-made can never satisfy. The power of God in might and mercy is expressed with justice. He pulls down the self-made and lifts up the poor in spirit. So your self-worth is not defined by your successes or your failures. Your self-worth is secure in God's love for you through Christ Jesus. You don't need to strive to make something of yourself. You are of something because you were made in the image of God. And you were loved because Christ gave his life for you. And he humbled himself to the point of an infant child. And then he humbled himself to the point of death. And because he humbled himself to the point of death, he has been highly exalted to have a name that is above every name, regardless of how our culture disregards his name. And your self-worth will be found, found not in exalting yourself, but where Christ is, humbling yourself like him. 
That's how our trust in such a mighty and merciful God will be expressed. Humble yourself. If you trust God's equitable justice, it will be shown through humility. But so many of us don't because, frankly, we just don't trust God's word. We don't trust that if I make myself poor in spirit, the blessing of being poor in spirit will be better than the blessing of being self-made. What could you ever do that could actually please God? Could your career please God? Could your SoundCloud plays please God? Could your Instagram follower account please God? Could your resume really please God? You know what God is pleased with? The Lord has told us who he is pleased with and what he is pleased with by his own words. God the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God is pleased with his son. And he is pleased with you as your life is lived in line with his son. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. This is the equitable justice of God. Your self-worth is not defined by exalting yourself. Your self-worth is not defined in your successes or your failures, but by God's love for you in Christ Jesus. When you trust this, you will gladly humble yourself before God because you know that in humility you are exalted with Christ. Friends, stop striving to be, striving to be self-made start humbling yourself before God. There's one last way that in this passage that we see the might and mercy of God expressed. And it's found in verse 53. Look at it there with me. It says, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. The poor in spirit are also called spiritually hungry. And God's might and mercy is expressed in his goodness. His goodness to fill those are, who are hungry for what they know can, their souls can only be fed and found from God. But it seems like Mary's talking about more than food here, doesn't it? I'm going to get together with family soon, and I'm going to go hungry. And I know I'm going to be filled with some things. Hopefully, I'm going to be filled with stuffing. Hopefully, I'm going to be filled with turkey. And then when I'm already filled, they're going to bring out the dessert. I'm going to fill myself a little bit more. And then I'll count calories the next day. But it sounds like Mary's saying, he has filled the hungry with good things. Seems like she's talking about more than food, doesn't it? Because if she was talking about food, she would say, he has filled the hungry with food. So what are the good things that God fills us with? I think Jesus answers this question in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those who are poor in spirit know that there's nothing in them that can buy God's righteousness. Like a beggar, they are starved for God's righteousness, though. And when they go to God 
for it, he graciously gives it, and they are filled with it. What is righteousness? Righteousness is a moral standard. It's a moral quality. Righteousness is the moral standard and quality that puts us in a right standing before God where he can accept us, where we are approved before him. But the scripture says that there is no one righteous, no, not one. The rich, on the other hand, the rich are those who don't feel like they need to go to God for their own righteousness. They are self-centered, self-made, self-righteous. They believe that they're justified in all that they do, and all that they do should be and must be approved by God, and they can stand before him by their own standard and their own moral quality. They're the rich who don't need to beg. But look at what verse 53 says. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. As a poor man depends on the, right, the kindness of others to receive their food, so we depend on the grace of God to be counted as righteous and to be filled with righteousness. And this righteousness can only be received from our promised Savior King, Jesus. The Bible uses another metaphor to talk about righteousness. Here it talks about food. The other metaphor that it uses frequently is clothing. Uh, do you know that short story called The Emperor's New Clothes? You may be familiar with that animated movie that came out a couple years ago, The Emperor's New Groove. It's based on Emperor's New Clothes. And you might know it. If you don't, let me briefly explain it to you. The Emperor's New Clothes is about the story of an emperor, a king, who was wealthy. But he didn't use his money in a way that maybe a king or an emperor should have. Didn't spend anything really on the military. Didn't really spend anything to be able to provide or the, for the economy of the nation. What he did spend his money on was clothes. Lots and lots and lots of clothes. And everyone knew it. So these two thieves come to town. And they have this idea to be able to swindle this emperor out of money. And the thieves tell him that they're weavers who can make the most ornate wardrobe he could ever imagine. But the special thing about this wardrobe is it's woven with thread that is invisible except to those who are fit to be in the emperor's position. Only those who are fit to be emperor can see the clothes. Everyone else would see them invisible. And he thinks, I need to have these. So the weavers, who are really thieves, get to go weaving. But the emperor wants to know how the progress is, so he sends a worker. And the worker goes, and he sees this mannequin, and he sees the thieves, and he sees nothing. But then the thieves say, it was like, oh, but that's because this is the special fabric that can only be seen by those who are worthy to be the emperor, so you must not be. And the worker knows that the emperor really loves his clothes, and he wouldn't want to go back telling them a bad report. So he just goes along and says, well, wow, this is beautiful. Look at the colors. I've never seen such beautiful colors. Look at the fat. I've never felt such beautiful fabric. And he goes and gives his report to the emperor. And then finally, it's done. And the emperor comes with the worker and the thieves and the worker are praising the beauty of these clothes and look how amazing it. And it's only for you, emperor, and you alone are fit to see it. But the emperor looks at it and he doesn't see anything either. But 
he's getting all this praise from this people, so he goes along with it too. And then he does the thing that he always does when he gets a new wardrobe. He sits on a horse, and he goes for a parade through the streets, wearing these clothes. And as the workers and the thieves are praising him, so all the people in the street are like, it's beautiful, yes. Until one child lifts up his voice and says, but he's wearing no clothes at all. And then the, kid, the people of the town actually listen to him. He's like, yeah, he is wearing nothing. And in his heart of heart, the king knows, I am wearing nothing. But he still commands that the parade keeps going, wearing nothing. We've bought into a lie like this. We've bought into a lie that we all can stand before a holy God fit in our own self-works, uh, self-righteousness and our own good works and are deserving of God's praise and deserving of God's approval. But really, we're naked and we're empty and we have nothing. The only one who can stand before God approved is those who stand up filled and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that means recognizing that before God, I am empty and I am naked. God's might and mercy is shown in his goodness, though, and that he is willing to offer his righteousness. So if I were to trust in him, how would that, what would that trust look like? I wouldn't depend on my own good deeds to be found right before God. I would depend on his grace. Are you dependent on him? Are you dependent on God's grace? See, in God's grace, he accepts us not based on our own self-righteousness, but based on Christ's righteousness. The grace of God in Christ is our confidence that we will not be sent away, but that we'll be accepted. No one has seen God the only God. One day we will all stand before him, and when you stand before him, you will either be the hungry who has been filled and is received, or you will be a rich person who thinks they are rich, standing in their own self-righteousness, and the rich will be sent away. Do you count the goodness of God's righteousness better than your own good deeds? Or do you think you can stand before God justified by the way you've lived? Is Christ's righteousness better than how you imagine yourself as a good father? Or how you imagine yourself as a good mother? Or how you imagine yourself as a good student? Or how you imagine yourself as a good volunteer at church or a good employee or a good employer? The best of our good deeds are not worth boasting in compared to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the good news is that though we are clothed in wretched rags by our own sinfulness and those own things that we are enslaved to leading to death, God is ready to wrap up, wrap us in his righteousness and receive us by his grace. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Stop trusting in your own good deeds. Depend on God's grace alone and you will be filled by God. You will be accepted by God. But if you don't, you will be sent away.
So are you the person that should be worried? Should you be worried that God is going to scatter you, cast you down, send you away? Are you the person who's self-centered, striving to be self-made, and satisfied in your own self-righteousness? The message of Christmas shows us a better way, a different way, a blessed way. It shows us that God is powerful. He delivers and he scatters. He exalts and he casts down. He receives and he sends away. The God is the creator of universe, retains and maintains absolute power, but he wields it in might and with mercy. You have a choice. You have a choice to live your own life, your own self-centered, self-made, self-righteous way or to trust in him. To be loyal to him, to be humble before him, and to be dependent on him. It's worth it to choose to trust God. It's worth it to give up your self-centered, self-made, self-righteous ways because you will be received. Because you will be lifted up. Because you will be delivered. And in him, following the one who created you and the design he has for your life, you will find a blessing that you never knew you could have. This is the beauty of the message of Christmas. Not just a child in a manger. Way more than gifts under a tree. It's the mercy of God to the poor in spirit. God wields his absolute power with might and mercy. Will you trust in him today? Let's stand together and then we'll pray and sing. Father, thank you that, that you are generous, that you are kind, and that you satisfy. Thank you that you offer peace. Thank you that you give us a life worth living. Thank you that you show us where our self-worth is. Thank you that we don't need to be fear that we'll be sent away, but we know we're accepted and received in Christ, not based on what we've done. Lord of heaven, would you motivate us to trust in you? Would you provoke us to recognize that if we've been trusting in our self-centered, self-made, self-righteous ways that we're lost? And would you cause us to see that when we trust in you, we can have direction, we can have meaning, we will know our worth, we'll know we'll be received. Thank you for the beauty of this good news that we see in the meekness of this promised Savior King who came from heaven to earth as a child. Please, God, please, Lord, help us to trust you, to let go of ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.